And now, people of God, let us again turn to Matthew's Gospel. And having seen last week the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we move in Matthew to this section on the birth of our Savior. Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. But let's first bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it is humbling to read Holy Scripture, to submit ourselves under the authority of this authoritative word that has come from the God to whom we now pray, and to realize, Heavenly Father, that it is by grace that we have been given this book, and by grace that we believe this book, and by grace that we are learning how to live according to its precepts. But it is especially humbling for us to come to a passage such as this one and see something of the miracle of the incarnation of our Lord and to understand in the depths of our souls the need that we have of a virgin-born Savior. And may our commitment be to so humble our souls before Thee and to so love and enjoy Thee in these precious truths that it will be truth that feeds our piety, truth that produces godliness, and that this truth will be held by us if all the world forsake it. And now, Heavenly Father, we pray for the blessed work of the Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit that brought about the virginal conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, that this Holy Spirit may be at work in our hearts to grow us in grace and also to save some lost who may be among us today that they, having walked in lost, will walk out saved, knowing Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of their lives. And we ask, especially in this season of the year, thy blessing upon our children, that they may grow understanding these truths and believing these truths and trusting Christ who came into this world to be our Redeemer, and that these little children, in the excitement of this season of the year, will be taught in their church, in their worship, in their Sunday schools, and in their homes, and in the family worship of their homes, who this Jesus is, and that every child would believe in Christ for time and eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin reading at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, I hope that it is never simply commonplace to you that on every Lord's Day, using the words usually of the Apostles' Creed, we confess the fundamental truths of our faith. And among those truths that we confess is the virginal conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, so that He who came into this world was born of a virgin. But many a congregation no longer believes these truths. Many a minister standing in pulpits this morning does not believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And it amazes me, actually, how many churches call themselves evangelical that are giving up on all that historically has made an evangelical an evangelical. The inerrancy of the Bible, for example, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, and yes, the virgin birth, among other truths. Now, early in the 20th century, Harry Emerson Fostick proclaimed to the world, a Baptist preaching in a Presbyterian pulpit, that we could no longer believe in the virgin birth because it was a biological impossibility. But isn't the whole point of our salvation that it was an impossibility, an impossibility for all but the omnipotent God, that everything about our salvation from beginning to end is supernatural? And we believe these truths. All that he did to save us was impossible for any but him, and he could do this. And then J. Gresson Machen wrote his truly great monumental book on the virgin birth of Christ, in which he showed that it was impossible to remove the virgin birth from Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and still hold to the integrity of the New Testament. That is, if you remove these narratives from Matthew and Luke, you no longer have the integrity of the book, and you can no longer believe the Jesus of the Gospels. And that monumental book is still the place to go when you want to read about the New Testament and these intricacies of the virgin birth of Christ. If this is never preached, then congregations will come to the conclusion it might not be so important after all. Perhaps it's unimportant, and perhaps it's not necessary that we believe these truths. But people of God, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a fundamental of our Christian faith, and it must be preached, and it must be believed. So we turn to Matthew's account, and the first thing that we see is that the Lord, through an angel, announces the virginal conception of Jesus Christ And we see that in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy 
Spirit. This supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit is affirmed right here in this verse, as well as in others in this gospel and in Luke's gospel. We read on in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Jewish engagements, as you probably will remember, were legally binding. And though no sexual union occurred during the engagement, Joseph was considered Mary's husband in a legal sense. And infidelity would have been considered adultery. So when Joseph discovers that she is with child, he is a just man and a kind man. He assumes that there has been sexual activity outside the engagement, and he wishes to dissolve the union quietly. But then we have the angel's announcement there in verse 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Joseph is given assurance from God through this angelic announcement, an assurance that he could not have hoped for. God gave him peace, the purpose of the pregnancy, and instructions And this one that is to be born is called Son of David because God is about to send his son of David's line, the king. Uh, Do not fear to take your wife. That is to say, go on with the engagement and on with the marriage. And even the name of this virgin-born child is given. The name, of course, is Jesus. For Joseph to call his name means that he will accept him as his adopted son. And this is truly remarkable when you stop to consider that the infinite eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human nature and became man, condescended that he might be born of a virgin, but also that he would have an adoptive father. The important things are these. Mary conceived this child by the power of the Holy Spirit, not naturally, but supernaturally, She is to bring forth the Savior of the world. So these things are inseparably connected. The supernatural conception and the salvation of sinners indicated by his name. These things are inseparable one from another. Now I want to ask you this. Do you see yourself as a needy sinner? Do you see your need before the holy God of a Savior and of a Redeemer. So needy that it requires the supernatural intervention of God. Do you realize that you cannot save yourself? Uh, Have you come to the point in your life that you can push aside that humanism and and thought that I'm, I'm my own Savior, or by some political system I can be saved, or by some philosophical viewpoint I can be saved, or by my own morality I can be saved? The person who sees his need of of a Savior in the presence of a holy God, the person who sees his need will have no problem with the supernatural. As a matter of fact, he will understand it's called for because my sin and depravity are so inbred and so a part of me and so deep and so great, defining who I am outside of this Savior, Jesus Christ. I need this Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I would be lost forever.
Now we go on in the text and we see, secondly, the virgin birth, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And let's read verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the fulfillment of the passage that Pastor McNeil read to us earlier in the service from Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7, 14, that is quoted here in verse 23 of Matthew's gospel. It's a passage in which Jehovah offers King Ahaz to, uh, to, to ask for any, any sign that he would want, and Ahaz refuses because he does not want God intervening in his military alliances, and Isaiah then addresses the house of David with a sign that telescopes way out far beyond King Ahaz and the present circumstances that they face, though it relates to it, to one who would come who would be born of a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Alfred Edersheim said, never had the house of David sunk morally lower than when in the words of Ahaz it seemed to renounce the very foundation of its claim to continuance. But continue it did, and through the house of David came the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. So what is being proclaimed in Isaiah 7? What is being fulfilled here according to Matthew's gospel? Only God can save. That incarnation is essential. In children, the word incarnate means that God became man. Let me say this very plainly. When I was a a small child and I heard Jesus called God in the pulpit by a faithful minister, I thought that it meant God-like. I thought that sort of like a modernist would think. There was some spark of divinity within him. But no, we're saying that God himself became man. God himself entered into this world to redeem and save us. That's what incarnation means. And so the method of salvation requires a virgin birth. Edersheim again says, the golden cup of prophecy which Isaiah had placed empty on the holy table, waiting for the time of the end, was now full filled up to the brim with the new wine of the kingdom. And then as you move along in Isaiah after chapter 7 and you come to chapter 9, you see what kind of child this will be. And the Lord is very explicit about his deity as well as his humanity. And he says, for us, to us, a child is born, Uh, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so as God become man, that's this Emmanuel that is spoken of in chapter 7. And its actual fulfillment, well, look at verses 24 through 25 here in Matthew 1. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph trusted God. He believed God. 
He believed the promise of God. He reverenced God's name. He acted upon what God told him to do. Joseph's life did not revolve around himself, but was focused on God's promise that says to you and me this morning, believe the promise of God. Yes, believe this truth. Believe what is promised through it. But believe all of God's word. Believe the promise of God. Trust in his word. Oh, may this be used of the Lord to get out of our lives our autonomous way of thinking so that we submit ourselves completely under the authority of the Word of God. And so Mary and Joseph later had sexual relations in children. Now, that's very easy to find. For example, in chapter 12, verse 46 of Matthew's Gospel, just to take one example, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother, that is Mary, and his brothers, his brothers, you see, stood outside asking to speak to him. So his brothers were asking to speak with the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of perpetual virginity is a Roman Catholic invention. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. But now we come thirdly, the virgin-born child, his name, the virgin-born child, his name, and we're just going to touch on that this morning and perhaps next week spend more time with it. But his name is found in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It is a God-given name. It is integral to the argument, and that's the point I want you to see. This is not some kind of comment that really could be removed and, and is not so important. You know, it's all God's word, yes, but it's very integral to the argument that is here. Because pivotal events in Scripture came with God giving names, or sometimes changing names, so that Abram, exalted father, is given the name when God makes covenant with him Abraham, which is the father of a multitude. And now at this pivotal juncture in redemptive history, As the virgin birth is announced, God gave the child's name. So we do not set up our own Savior. God saves and God names the child, and God points to the significance of this particular epoch in redemptive history. So why the name Jesus? Because Jesus, which of course is the Greek for Joshua, pardon me, Jesus means Savior. It's actually a contraction. It means Jehovah saves. It means Savior. And Jehovah is the only Savior of sinners. Isaiah 43.11, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Isaiah 45.21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God, and the Savior there is none but me. The point here born of a virgin, his name is Emmanuel, God with us, all right, God come in the flesh, Jesus, Savior, is to point us back to passages such as those in Isaiah so that we understand and realize that this virgin-born Savior is Jehovah. He is the second person of the Trinity who became man. He is Jehovah. We believe and we preach the deity of Jesus Christ because The Bible teaches the deity of Christ, and there would be no salvation were Jesus not God who became man. 
So this is the name that saves. He shall save. That's the ring of sovereignty. His people, he has a chosen people whom he will save. From what does he save? Well, it tells you. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Thank God. He came to save me. He came to save you, people of God, from your sins, your awful sins, your hell-deserving sins, those sins that would, have, that would have sunk us to the deepest hell had he not entered into this world from their sins, which includes from guilt, so that in his atoning work on the cross, as far as the east is from the west, he proclaims that our sins are removed from us, but also from the power of sin increasingly in our lives. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace, says Paul the Apostle. So let's be plain. When Jesus comes to be our Savior, He comes to completely save. True saving faith embraces Christ from deliverance from guilt, but also from moral depravity and a corrupt heart, not only from hell. So that when we come to know this Jesus who came into this world to be our Redeemer, it really does change our hearts. We are regenerated by the Spirit of God. We are given faith to believe, and He will not leave us there, but He continues to sanctify our hearts and souls. How then does Jesus save from our sins? He saves us by taking all of the sins of His people on Himself and paying the penalty. He obeyed the law, and he paid the penalty, bearing the penalty due to his people's sins. And this points us to the meaning and significance of the virgin birth. Why the virgin birth? So this leads to the fourth thing, the virgin birth, its meaning. Why the virgin birth? We've seen the name Jesus, the ultimate meaning, Emmanuel, God with us. The virgin birth happened so that the Savior might be supernatural in his person. Not a mere baby, but the eternal Son of God, so his conception was supernatural through and through. At no time was the supernatural suspended. And in order to this, that the Savior himself coming into this world, assuming human nature, might do so sinlessly. Jesus' birth was preserved from the defilement of original sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. We are born sinners into this world. We are not born innocently into this world. We are born sinners. Jesus comes into this world without the defilement, the corruption of nature that we call original sin, the dehumanizing corruption of our nature by our fall in Adam. He could not be subject to the defilement of human depravity. As Herman Bovink puts it, the exclusion of the man from his conception at the same time had the effect that Christ, as not included in the covenant of works, remained exempt from original sin and could therefore also be preserved in terms of his human nature both before and after his birth from the pollution of sin. So why the virgin birth? Because he is Jesus, Emmanuel. 
so that the incarnation could become a reality, God become man. Because only God could save us. He is Jehovah who saves. Because only man could obey the law and pay the penalty of our sins. Because man broke the law and incurred the penalty. But only God can redeem. And so he must be God and he must be man. So he is God and man that he might be our sinless substitute on the cross. That his sacrifice have infinite value. And so we have in scripture the teaching two natures in perfect union. Two natures one person. He is God. He is man, perfectly united in one person. This is what Christmas is all about. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is what it required to save you and me from our sins. So listen, God came down. Not someone simply God-like, not someone who had a spark of divinity in him, who was born naturally, and no, God came down. He assumed human nature without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was born of her yet without sin, and so was qualified as the God-man to obey the law that we broke and to pay the penalty of our sins on the cross. Qualified. There was only one good enough to pay the price of sin, as we sometimes sing. There was only one who was qualified to redeem us, and that is Jesus Christ, our virgin-born Savior. So, in the virginal conception of Jesus, God prepared him to be the sacrifice for our sins, giving to him a human body and soul, yet without sin, he went to the cross and he bore and paid the penalty of my sin. Can you contemplate these things without being deeply moved? Do we think upon these things every year, hopefully all through the year, but especially this time of the year, and and has it become commonplace to you? Oh, never, never let it be commonplace that God became man. And, and I actually fear that sometimes we're, we're so filled with human hubris that we say, of course God came man to save me. I'm worthy, aren't I? No, he came for sinners. He died for the ungodly. That's why it's so remarkable. God became man and dwelt among us. Now, having said all of these things based on this text and others, I think the fifth thing is this. The virgin birth, is it essential? The virgin birth, is it essential? And I mean by that, is it essential to believe? And the answer is yes. And against Herman, again, Herman Bovic, I think, is right when he says the supernatural conception of Christ is of supreme importance. You see, it's God's Word. That's first. It's part of the offense of the gospel that should be proclaimed in this world. The themes of Christ's deity, humanity, virgin birth, sinlessness, atonement, all comprise a seamless garment 
so that if you remove one thread, it all begins to unravel. All of these truths must be held together. And every believer has the duty to pursue and insist upon doctrinal purity as it relates to the virgin birth. It is a real test about what a person believes about Christ if he confesses with all of his heart and soul, I believe in the virgin birth, the virginal conception of Jesus, the virgin birth of Christ. And though this is true of everyone, it is especially true of officers in the church of Jesus Christ, especially true of ministers and of elders and of deacons. You know, ministers in the Presbyterian Church subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have liberal Presbyterian churches that have jettisoned the confession, but historic Presbyterianism, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It certainly teaches all of the things that I've been saying this morning to you. And so it's a matter of plain honesty for us to say, I believe in the virgin birth. I love this truth. I will proclaim this truth. I will preach this truth. I will teach my people to believe this truth. I believe in the virgin birth. And yet the Auburn Affirmation, this was in the Northern Presbyterian Church, on December 26, December 26, 1923, the Auburn Affirmation was proclaimed in the Northern Presbyterian Church by, I think, 150 ministers later signed by over 2,000, and it became immensely influential in the Northern Church, in which it said that truths such as the virgin birth of Christ were just theories after all, and that certainly a minister shouldn't be be, uh, held to the standard of holding to the virgin birth of Christ or, or penal substitutionary atonement or other fundamentals of the faith. William Charles Robinson, Southern Presbyterian conservative theologian, when actually in the Southern Church someone had appealed to the Auburn affirmation, made this comment. He said, the rejection of the virgin birth logically involves the rejection of the preexistence of Christ. The logic of the position is to regard our Lord as a temporal human person rather than as a divine eternal person. And those who reject an article of the Apostles' Creed, the virgin birth, are not likely to sit very firmly on the decisions of the ecumenical councils, the early church councils, that Christ is God the Son, co-eternal with the Father, though this is the clear teaching of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so, in that church, the Presbyterian Church in the USA, the Northern Church, the church was asked to put confidence in men who deny the fundamentals of the faith, fill their pulpits with such men, and that denomination is now completely liberal in its commitments. I don't mean that everybody in it is, but as a denomination, it is completely liberal in its commitments. Why? Oh, because they listened to Harry Emerson Fostick and others like him when he said the virgin birth was a biological impossibility. And the fruit of that rationalism is a church that no longer proclaims the Christ of the Bible, that redefines the gospel in thoroughly humanistic ways, which is a warning to us, people of God. I have told you and told you, I will say it over and over, it only takes one generation, one generation, 
to lose the faithfulness of the church. Biological impossibility. Thank God. Yes. What is impossible for man is possible with God. He is the omnipotent creator and redeemer. It took what is impossible with man, but possible with our omnipotent God to save this sinner from his sin. I can tell you that. And it required what was impossible for man, but possible with our omnipotent God to save you from your sin as well. So let me bring this to a conclusion with these thoughts. My brethren, my brothers and sisters, only a supernatural Christ can bring us all the way home. Our brother Philip, thinking of his service yesterday, is home because God became man and dwelt among us, was born of a virgin, obeyed the law that he broke, paid the penalty of his sins, rose from the dead. Only a supernatural Christ could do that. Only the virgin-born God-man can save us by His grace. So perhaps there's someone here who has not yet trusted in Christ, and maybe you hear this and you think, how medieval of the pastor to believe these things. I'm just too enlightened to believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Well, you may say that, but listen. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who was a ruler among the Jews. He was very enlightened by the standards of his day, but he was blind to the truth. And to him, Jesus said, you must be born again. Now that's the issue. These things are objectively true, but for you to trust in this Christ and to believe these truths savingly, there must be the regeneration of the heart you must be born of God's Spirit. You must be born again. So a young man once said to a minister, I cannot become a Christian because I do not believe in the virgin birth. Young man, it is not the virgin birth that is troubling you, it is your sin, said the minister. What is it? And the man left, young man left angrily. And that night he came back. And he said, you're right, my difficulty is not with the virgin birth, but with myself. And he confessed his sin, and he trusted in Christ. And the minister then asked him if he wanted to discuss the virgin birth. He said, no, I have no objection to the virgin birth. My friend, if the Holy Spirit causes you to see your impure birth... You know, get rid of this notion, this Pelagian notion that we're born innocently into this world. We're not. We're born with a corrupt heart. We're fallen in Adam. And if the Holy Spirit causes you to see your impure birth, then you will immediately see your need of his absolutely impeccable pure birth to save you from your sins. And then you can sing, perhaps for the first time, and mean it, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, 
Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Amen. Amen.